We're talking money, but without the filters. It's the one thing that none of us can escape, but that we still can't talk about without cringing. I'm Victoria, millennial financial advisor. And I'm Ellie, money coach and founder of This Girl Talks Money. Each week, we'll be having a no-holds-barred conversation about real-life money. Nothing's off limits here, so grab yourself a coffee or a cheeky glass of wine and settle on in. Welcome back to another episode of Money Unfiltered. In this episode today, we are joined by Michael Harding to talk about financial inequality. Mike is an entrepreneur who provides educational content, courses and coaching on all things finance, from reducing your bills and creating extra income to learning how to invest in stock markets and digital assets. Mike believes that nobody should work a full-time job they don't enjoy or be told when or where to work. And he believes that getting financial education is the key to helping people get out of their own way so that they can pursue their passions and get paid to do what they love. In our conversation with Mike, we lift the bonnet on the topic of financial inequality, which obviously is a huge topic with so much to unpick. But In this week's episode, we looked at some of the roots of the situation we face today and whether there's any hope for change. So let's get straight in. Access to financial services and credit are universally considered to be necessary if we want to lead a normal life in today's society. Whether it's basic bank and savings accounts, a mortgage or loans, who is it that has actually been left out of the system and why is it that people are being left out of the system? Um, I would probably say who's originally left out is pretty much anyone of any ethnic minority background. Um, I think there's definitely like a a kind of thought path that it's just people of a black Afro-Caribbean uh, background. But I think it's all ethnic minorities that are, are left out. Um, And I think this is a multi-generational problem uh, just because I'd say a vast majority of multi-billion dollar corporations, a vast majority of real estate that exists today in the world has been created from the extortion of ethnic minorities in terms of their physical labor, whether it's factory workers, whether it's agriculture, whether it's actually physically building the buildings. We even still see it today with the whole lorry drivers situation and and the the fruit pickers situation. Like it's always someone external of the people that hold the wealth doing the, the physical work and never really getting compensated accurately. Um, so that's where it, where it starts in, in my opinion. Um, and then in terms of like how it's happening, I, I think the biggest place where it happened is in the real estate market. I think just the ability to get into real estate, which is for most people, the biggest storehold of wealth in, in families, especially, especially because it's normally handed down from generation to generation, just isn't there. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'd say on that one. Yeah, and actually, there's an amazing Netflix uh, clip that I watched recently. For anyone who's interested, you should definitely give it a watch. It's a 16-minute explained documentary called The Racial Wealth Gap, and it explains how 
much the land and housing situation has perpetuated the racial wealth gap, like over, like you say, over generations and generations. And some of the stats are just astounding. I mean, we know pretty well that it's been immensely difficult for anyone other than the white middle class historically to buy a home. But for the American middle class today, home equity accounts for two thirds of their wealth. And so if you're a white person living in America today, chances are your grandparents bought a home for $40,000 and today it's worth $600,000 and is sitting in your hands. And obviously if you're a black person or anything other than the white middle class essentially living in America, it's gonna be entirely different. And I'm interested, how does that compare with the situation in the UK? Have we seen the same patterns here? Yeah, I, I would say most definitely. I, again, I would say that there is a, a guise that suggests not, but then when you look at where the largest preservation of wealth in the United Kingdom is, especially in the real estate market, without a shadow of a doubt, it's in London. Like, <laughs> like when you compare property prices in London compared to Manchester or Birmingham, it's like 10 million, 9 million is the average price of a home in Mayfair. Like, it's, that's, you can buy like a whole street in Birmingham for, for that amount. <laughs> and it's just, unfortunately, when we look at those areas, those properties are handed down from generation to generation and unfortunately that's not from ethnic minorities that have been born and raised here since the 50s or maybe even say for example black or asian families that were in uh, the uk in the 1800s in the 1600s because people that again there's this illusion that black and asian people only came into the united kingdom in the ninth after the 1950s after the windrush generation but that's just factually incorrect like there's been ethnic minorities in the UK way, way before then, but it's very, I personally haven't, from all the research I've done, never heard of a family that's multi-generational that has a property in Mayfair or in South Kensington or in, in Chelsea that's worth millions and millions. Like, yes, the opportunities did arise in the 70s and the 80s and people managed to get onto the property market and get some of these properties for 40,000, 60,000 that are now worth half a million, a million, two million. But that compared to something in SW1. Yeah, it's so true. And I guess the media just doesn't paint that picture, does it? If you see, you know, like an Asian person who's kind of, it's a new money who lives in a multi-million pound home in London mm -hmm. versus like a white middle-class person living in a multi-million pound home in London, the pictures painted in the media of just that, and it doesn't talk about like how one has got there versus the other. Do you think that's kind of damaging the way the media mm -hmm. portrays these things as, as equal? Without a shadow of a doubt, I think the way that the media portrays it, like all we've got to do is look at, so the, the storeholds of wealth are obviously property, but then the bigger storehold of wealth is land like at the end of the day and these big country manners like there's going to be asian and black families that their families worked on those manners that their families helped to 
do something with the agriculture or with the, the manufacturing that was involved in that estate or even in the commercial property side of things. But then what do they own? What's given to them? And it's, it's, there's unfortunately nothing really there. Yes, we're seeing now a lot of overseas investors from the Middle East and from China and so on and so forth coming over to the UK and buying up these, these kind of things. But we're talking about people from the UK, like not overseas. And I think in terms of the media, one of the things that I noticed, and there's a great New York Times article on it, is about what happened during the COVID pandemic, about the kind of um, money that was available. So we heard about all this money that the government had created, literally out of thin air, to go and help build all this business, get the PPE, get the machines, get the ventilators, so on and so forth. And yet there was Black and there was Asian and there was Chinese people that had had those businesses in the UK for 10, 20, 30 years, but yet only one out of 100 of those applications went through versus one in 10 of those applications for people that were friends of politicians, family members of, of people that were politicians, uh, our good old friend Nick Clegg and his uh, situation. It's very, very, very interesting when certain people are in bed together, literally, and the grants that get given to friends and brothers and, and so on and so forth. And again, we can see that this money is kept internally. It doesn't go where it needs to go, even if you've got the credentials and the business that's actually been doing it for 10 years versus someone that's just gone, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You know what? Let me start that. I've just registered on Company House, mate. You're right to um, send us over that £2 million, please. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's, that's what the media sometimes forgets to, to mention. I mean, you've outlined it perfectly there, the role that network and connections plays when it comes to wealth and increasing wealth, distributing wealth. And given that there's no real prospect anytime soon on the horizon of the politicians changing their tune and things getting a little bit more accessible or equitable, what is there that we can do or that racial minorities, ethnic minorities can do to try and address this lack of financial inclusion or to try and give themselves an opportunity to to access some of that wealth? Yeah, um, I'd say the ultimate and most important thing is to educate yourself, educate others, um, just on even basic terminology. So what we're seeing now is a mass amount of offerings for ethnic minorities to get into the property market with 5% down payments or with um, shared ownership. Yes, this sounds great, but when you actually take the time out to look at what the interest repayments would be or what how much of the equity of the property you actually end up have having after you're in this 40-year deal, it's not always in your best interests. So we're seeing this happen. But again, some of the, the, the stats that are out there, 10% of the, the top 10% of wealth, 90% of their wealth is in the stock market. So it's kind of like they're going, oh, yeah, you guys can have property now. We're, we're over here making the real big money. And what needs to kind of happen is people need to be educated to be shown, look, 
you can invest for as little as a pound. You can start an ISA. You can you can even automate it so that it just comes out of your bank account and you don't even see it. There's a, a great story of a, a gentleman in America who was a car parking attendant. Um, let me just find his name. I think his name was Earl. Uh, yeah, Mr. Earl, the famous Mr. Earl. So he was a car parking attendant for 44 years. Um, he never made more than £12 an, uh, an hour, but he ended up with a net worth of over a million dollars. Um, and then there's the same story with a gentleman called Theodore Johnson, and he ended up with a net worth of over 70 million. That's just the power of compound investing. So it's just people need to kind of be educated on what is available, how easy it actually is in comparison to getting onto the property market first. I personally believe investing into the stock market first because the gains are greater. You can uh, you can liquidize your assets way quicker. Then use the gains and the wealth that you've got there then to get into the the property market. That's that's personally what I think is the way forward. Yeah, that's so interesting. And actually, I really want to ask you in a minute about how we can get involved in the stock market if it seems completely foreign. But first of all, just that point on compound interest, because that clearly is the key. And I mean, some of the stats are just unbelievable. I think it's something like if you invested $100 in uh, I think it's 153 years ago, $100 would today be worth $3.5 million if it had been in the stock market, which just proves the compounding over time. So essentially, if your great grandparents mm-hmm. had left you a gift of $100, you would today have $3.5 million, which is just insane. But for people who have never heard this term before, can you just explain what does it mean, compound interest, and how does it work? How can $100 become $3.5 million? Okay, so the best way to think of compound interest is, let's say, for example, you could take this £100 example, and it goes up by 10%. That is now 110. And then if that now goes up by another 10%, that's now 111, and so on and so on and so on and so forth. So it just keeps piling up on top of itself. So it's literally making money work for itself. So you, it's um, Einstein called it the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. And it, it really is, like once you start understanding it and seeing what's actually truthfully possible, it's mind-blowing. And I think this is where the power of, of DeFi in terms of the, the, the blockchain space is really, really interesting because the, the compounding effect of, 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 of what's possible is mind-blowing and super accessible. Just to jump in there, can you explain what DeFi is? Okay, yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, so... DeFi is decentralized finance. So it's basically the world of finance and financial applications and financial methods of growing and storing wealth, but online in decentralized blockchain uh, ledgers. So instead of it being through a central authority like a bank, like a asset management company, your money is then distributed across the blockchain and the compound growth happens there and much quicker and much easier to deal with. 
I mean, that sounds absolutely amazing. And it sounds like it's some, it sounds like it's something that's accessible to all of us from what you're saying for somebody who is interested, a, where do we start and B what are the risks? Because I know there's a lot of controversy around this, around this Mm -hmm. topic. What, what do we need to know? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What you need to know? Um, yes, a hundred percent, all investment does come with risk. I'm not a financial advisor. Please seek uh, professional advice from an accredited financial advisor. But my take on what makes a, for me personally, what I look at before I'm investing in anything in that space is a use case, is does this technology, whatever this token is, whatever this digital asset is, let me just type it in on YouTube and watch four or five videos about it, then go onto the company website, then go and read the white paper and find it and ask myself, do I see people using this in the future? Do I see this as, has this got a viable use case that people would need to use this? Say for example, file storage, would people need to store their files on the internet, on the blockchain? Hmm, let me see. Probably yes. Would people need companies that are going to allow for logistics to be operated on the blockchain? Probably yes. And this is where the, the, I, I really educate people on, on what to do. And I think it's surprising the amount of information when it comes to investing in the stock market and investing in blockchain technologies, the amount of information that is freely available on the internet I mean, earnings reports of companies like Coinbase, which there's over 9,000 institutions investing in Coinbase. The reason you can find that information out is because it's on their earnings report. Now, you wouldn't have been able to find this information out 50, 100 years ago. Now, regardless of if if you're an ethnic minority, regardless of the hue of your skin, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, it wasn't possible to get hold of these earnings reports and get hold of this information, whereas it is now. And it just takes a few simple clicks and asking the internet, what do I do? And the internet will tell you the answers. I obviously know, we've obviously spoken a lot about this and you're right, like there is just a whole world out there and it's it's at our fingertips and we can access it. Probably a lot of our listeners don't know what Coinbase is, don't know much about the blockchain, maybe haven't even ever invested in the stock market. And it probably still seems like a very foreign, like very foreign territory for them. Where does somebody who's listening to this and thinks, okay, great, I can make my money work for me. I can benefit from compound growth on my money and and grow my wealth. Where does somebody start? Do we need a fact, do we just need to be able to afford a financial advisor or are there ways we can educate ourselves and and how? Yeah, again, I would say the super, super simple way is to just literally go on YouTube and type in, how do I invest? Watch not one video, but at least five to 10 and get different opinions and different things. And then pick up the common themes, then pick up the common names of successful investors. And you'll see there's, there's, there's several common ones like, Mark Cuban, who we all know from Shark Tank, like Warren Buffett, like um, 
don't know if to say his name, George Soros. Like there's there's a, there's a few names out there that you'll see that keep popping up. Just find out what their investment techniques are, read books that are about them and figure out. So one of the books that I recommend to all my students is Money Master the Game by Tony Robbins. It's the probably one of the best books for someone that has no idea about finance, no idea about anything. So just pick it up, have a read, and it will just gradually guide you through how this financial world works. Yeah, that's awesome. I think going to those simple starting points, reading the books, getting the basics is always a really good place to start. And then you can build your knowledge on top of that. But I mean, thank you so much for all of the wisdom that you've shared over the last few few minutes. Um, we've only just scratched the surface on so many of these issues, financial inclusion, decentralized finance. And so we're going to have to come back definitely and mm -hmm. do another episode to build on some of these and dig into it a bit more. But for anybody who is listening and does have questions that wants to find out more about what it is that you do, what you teach, where can they find you? Um, on LinkedIn, Michael Harding. On my Instagram, our company Instagram is called Blockchain Sensei. Um, and from on that page, we also have a TikTok to make it a little bit more friendly. And we break down massive concepts in the financial world and in the blockchain cryptocurrency space and really make them bite-sized and digestible and really easy and fun and simple to understand because finance should be fun. It shouldn't be big and scary and have all these weird terminologies that you're like, oh, what does this mean? It should just be fun and, and, and simple. So yeah, that's where you can find us. Blockchain Sensei on Instagram, uh, Blockchain Sen on Twitter. And my personals are just Michael Harding on LinkedIn and I am Mr. Harding on Instagram. Amazing. And I think that's such a great note to, to end on that finance is for everyone. And in today's world, we all can participate and can have access. So thank you so much. We'll be here next week with another fabulous guest, bringing you more unfiltered money conversations. Please share the podcast with family and friends, leave us a review and definitely let us know who you'd like to hear from next. We love to hear from you.